0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. And we're going to cover a lot of territory together in the ninth chapter of John. And we're trusting the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today, because if He doesn't teach us, we won't retain anything. It will make no difference in our lives. And so we're asking the Holy Spirit to do His work in and around us today. Sam Houston is one of the more colorful and influential figures in American history in the second third of the 18th century. He was born in Virginia to a prominent family in 1793. It was not long thereafter that he and his family migrated south to western North Carolina. Upon the death of his father, whose name he bore, by the way, his father was Samuel, Houston, and he was quite the soldier, had fought in the Revolutionary War, and continued in, throughout the rest of his life as a military man. When he passed away, Sam, who was the fifth of five boys when he was born, ended up being the fifth of nine children. After his father died, his mother and all nine of the children moved to East Tennessee. And there they planted their roots. He became very enchanted with the flora and fauna of East Tennessee. If you've ever been to the Smoky Mountains, you can see why. And he also became friends with the Cherokee Indian Nation. In fact, there would be times in his late teens and early 20s when he would apparently disappear. And his family grew worried about him, as you can imagine. But word reached them that he was with the Cherokee chief And that man actually later in his life adopted him as his son. His name among the Cherokees was the Raven. He was a great man among the Cherokees before he was a great man among his own people. He was the seventh governor of Tennessee. At the age of 33, he became governor of Tennessee. He was handpicked, actually by Andrew Jackson, anointed by him. He was elected by the citizens of Tennessee, and that happened actually after he had been the first U.S. representative to Congress from the 7th District of Tennessee. He was running for re-election, and it was a high point in his life. He had succeeded a man by the name of William Carroll, who had served three consecutive Terms as governor of Tennessee, which was the maximum number of consecutive terms anyone could serve as governor of that state. And it was thought that he would step aside and let Carroll run again and serve three more terms. But he thought otherwise, even though Carroll was a protege of Andrew Jackson's also, and the person whom Jackson put his hand upon and appointed typically got elected. He had that kind of influence By this time, Jackson was President Jackson of the United States of America. And you know his story probably better than you know the story of Sam Houston. But Sam was running the race, and he got married. At the age of 35, he got married to a 19-year-old young lady by the name of Eliza Allen. Eliza came from one of the more prominent families in the Nashville area where the capital was. They married... And he had found the love of his life. And to his great chagrin, in less than two months, she left him. Because she said, I do not want to be married to you again. I cannot be married. It devastated him. And two days after she left, he wrote his letter of resignation of the governorship of Tennessee. He went into seclusion. Not many days passed until under the cloak of darkness, he and three companions got passage on a steamboat going up the Cumberland River to the Ohio River. Then when they reached the Ohio River, they hired a flat boatman, and he helped them get down the Ohio to the Mississippi, and they continued down the Mississippi River until they came to the mouth of the Arkansas River, And then they began to make their way up the Arkansas River. Here's why. Because by this time, Ulu and the large portion of the Cherokee Nation had been moved into the Arkansas Territory. And he had a longing to be with the man to whom he looked as a father. He wanted to be with the Cherokee people again. He found them. Word made its way back from Tennessee that Sam had gone Away and had made his way into the area where the Cherokees were then living in what we now know as Arkansas. Jackson knew of the powerful influence this young man could have. In fact, it had been considered that he would be a president in the near future of the United States of America. But that all blew up with the end of his marriage and the impact that had upon him emotionally. Well, Jackson was concerned that when Houston made his way into the Arkansas Territory, he would begin to rally the Indians around himself. And in fact, Jackson was right. He gathered 7,000 warriors, not just from the Cherokee Nation, but the Choctaws, the Creeks, and the Osage Indians. They formed the most powerful band of warriors from the Mississippi to the Plains area. And so there was great concern. It only took Houston eight weeks to pull that off. That shows his great, powerful influence. When he came back from the big powwow he had had with these soldier Indians, he was sick. And it became apparent as his skin began to turn jaundiced that he had malaria. For over a month, he lingered on death's doorstep. It was not thought that he would live. When he finally rallied, he found a letter had come to him from the President of the United States. And interestingly, the tact that President Jackson took with him, and I'm not saying President Jackson was not a man of faith, in fact, Historians would say by this time he had made a commitment to Christ. that was a personal commitment. But probably it was a political move on his part. And listen to what he had asked Sam Houston to do in relationship to the Indian nations. This is what Houston wrote to Jackson. The solicitude which you have so kindly manifested for my future welfare cannot fail to inspire me with a most proper sense of obligation. However, to become a missionary among the Indians is rendered impossible for lack of that evangelical change of heart so absolutely necessary to a man who assumes the all-important character of proclaiming to a lost world the mediation of a blessed Savior. He had a sense of what it meant to be a believer, didn't he? but he was man enough, honest enough, to admit he had not made that commitment. He had not had that change of heart. Therefore, it would be a lost cause if he were to become a missionary. This man counted the cost and found himself unwilling to pay the price to be a disciple of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the greatest figures in the middle of the 20th century within spiritual circles and in the history of Germany for sure, wrote a book almost 20 years earlier than he died. It was his doctoral dissertation, actually it was called Nachfolge, which in German simply means following after. And it was titled and is in print, no telling how many editions have been produced in English and other languages in the world, The Cost of Discipleship. In the preface to the book, listen to what he says. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. That would be a woman also. Any human being. When Jesus Christ issues the call to discipleship, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the call that Jesus gives. And in... Inherent in that call is to be a person who is willing to say no to yourself, to enter into a posture of self-forgetfulness rather than self-assertiveness. And then that person is prepared to be used by God. Otherwise, a person can't have that kind of relationship with God. The ninth chapter of John paints a picture of one man's journey from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. From spiritual death to spiritual life. From spiritual cluelessness to spiritual cleverness as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The man's healing from being blind from birth raised questions in the minds of his neighbors as well as his, the enemies of Christ. So let's take a look at the Inquisition of this once blind man, beginning in verse eight. Rather than read the whole section we're going to seek to make it to the end of the ninth chapter. I'm going to read and comment along the way, looking at these series, this series of questions which were asked. First of all, his neighbors asked simple questions, and we see this man giving. Honest answers to the question. Let's begin with verse 8 of chapter 9. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the one. Now there was some confusion as to whether this man who looked like the beggar was indeed the blind beggar. There had been a change in his appearance. And this is what happens when a person encounters Jesus Christ, and the person listens to Jesus, and does what Jesus says in terms of initiating a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The person changes. The Bible says, therefore, if any person is in Christ... That person is a new creation. All things have passed away. A euphemism which we use to say something about a person has died. We say the person has passed away. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In one of his books, E. Stanley Jones tells the custom that was true in the 19th century particularly and into the 20th century in The continent of Africa. When people came out of a lifestyle of animism and paganism and came to know Jesus Christ, it was customary when they were baptized as believers in Jesus Christ that they would take a Christian name, a new name. One such individual came for baptism. He was baptized and he was asked by the one who baptized him, What is your new name? And he said, after. I want to be known as after. Because of the great change which Christ had made in his life, that's the way he wanted to be recognized. And that could be said about all of us. We are to have an after. We all have a before Christ, but we're to have an after. And this man had changed. And he is listening to the question which is asked, is this the one who was blind And was a beggar. And he was listening and he heard three different times people were making their suggestions about about him. And each time, we know this because it says in the text in verse 9, he kept saying, I am the one. He didn't just say it once. We know that because of the tense of the verb there. It's an imperfect tense, which means continued action in the past. I am. Am the one. He didn't just say it once. He said it three times in answer to each one of these three groups who were wondering about the identity of this man. Well, when he said, I am the one, he's the only person besides Jesus in the Gospel of John who uses this statement, I am, in relationship to himself. And remember, What Jesus had told him to do after Jesus had spit in the dust and made some clay, smeared it on his eyes, Jesus says, now, what do you do? You go to the pool of Siloam, you wash the clay off of your eyes, and then you come back here. He did exactly that. The word Siloam means sent. And that is really what Jesus is to the Father and was to the people He came to on earth the first time and what He is to us. Jesus says about Himself, As the Father has sent Me, so I send you also. So when a person comes into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, Not unlike Jesus, that person becomes one who sees himself or herself as being sent. That in itself gives great purpose. Here was a man who had lacked purpose undoubtedly in his life. He just sat and begged. It was thought among the Jewish culture of the day in Jerusalem where this man resided and throughout Judaism for that matter. It was thought that it would be better to be dead than to be blind because of the uselessness that would be associated with blindness. I've been told by people who have become blind as adults that it's the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to them because it renders, initially at least, the impact of that, it seems to render the individual as being useless, whereas prior to that the person could have been useful to others. This man had a new identity, however, When I was in college, there was a book written by a man who actually worked on the campus of the university where I attended, and it was entitled, Farewell to the Fake I.D. This man said farewell to the fake I.D. that he had before. He was a son of Adam, not a son of God, even though he was a descendant of Abraham. And here this man had transitioned From being a dead man, a blind man spiritually, to a man in Christ. A man who had insight and a man who had life where there had been death. And he had said farewell to the fake ID. And his new identification was in Jesus Christ. When people ask you, who are you? They ask your name, but they really are digging for something else about you. Who are you in the sense of, what do you do? They're sizing us up when they ask that question. Are they not? By the way, I think it's an improper question to ask, coming from a Christian's mouth, because it indicates we're more interested in sizing people up than we are in the person himself or herself. In Christ, all people are on the same level. There is something important about that. But this man was a man who had a new identity. He did not quite fully understand it, but he had a new identity. Let's look at verses 10 and following. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? So they asked another question. He answered, the man, and notice the way in which he refers to Jesus. The man, who is called Jesus, made clay and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received my sight. He tells his story. He's giving his testimony. And the way in which he describes Jesus, he says, The man Jesus. Well, he knew that Jesus was a human being. How did he know he was a human being? Because Jesus' hands had touched his face. He had felt the warmth in the hands of Jesus. Perhaps you know that early in the history of Christianity, there were false teachers who were known as Gnostics. Don't worry about what that means, that's just their name, it had a meaning. But these people, some of them at least, there was a sect of the Gnostics, the Docetists, who believed that Jesus was fully divine, but not human at all. He just seemed to be human. And therefore, 1 John introduces itself with that in mind, if you know the way in which it's introduced, that Beautiful epistle from John. But nevertheless, what we learn is that this man knew that Jesus was not just some sort of figment of his imagination, not just some sort of apparition or ghost, because this man, Jesus, had touched him. And he knew that Jesus is a man. Is it important that Jesus Christ is a man? Is it? Yes, it is. It's ultimately important. Because he had to become one of us... His own description in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 says, He became a partaker of flesh and blood so that He could properly represent us as our Savior. He had to die for us and it had to be like sacrifice for like offender. We are human created in the image of God. We are fallen creatures Jesus was perfect. He is the second Adam. And Jesus took our place. So it's important that that was the case. This man didn't try to make Jesus out to be more than he knew him to be. He knew he was a man who had given him sight. And he was grateful for that. And then they asked a third question, these neighbors. These were curious questions. Questions which you and I would have asked. These people were not necessarily Stupid people, but they were simpler people than the next group we're going to encounter in terms of the way they thought, probably about themselves and other things as well. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So we have the questions of these curious neighbors and acquaintances and the answers which are truthful answers coming from the mouth of this once blind man. Now, in the next section, we're going to look at the questions of the Pharisees. And they were very serious. Some of them were falsely serious. But as we're going to see in this section, some of them were dead serious. They were really interested in finding out who this man was. And then we're going to see the very careful answers which this man gave to their questions. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. The Pharisees were people who were separated from everyone else. The Pharisee word means someone who's separated. Someone who does not want to contaminate himself or herself from the world. And actually, there were no female Pharisees. Pharisees were married, so by association, maybe they were Pharisees. But Pharisees were males only. And the Pharisees were the power brokers, really, when it got right down to it, to the neighbor types that came to this man in terms of their understanding of what real Judaism was. And these people therefore brought this man who was once blind as exhibit A of what they had witnessed that Jesus had done to the Pharisees. They were wanting some sort of explanation as to what had happened, some verification of what they were sensing had happened with this man. And verse 14 says, Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened His eyes. We have no appreciation what a loaded statement that would have been to people who were descendants of Abraham. People who had found the spell of the Pharisees cast upon them. People who had been burdened by the Pharisees who loved to tie up heavy loads, Jesus says in Matthew 23, and put it on their shoulders to burden them down and not lift a finger to lighten the load, this legalistic approach to faith. On the Sabbath, it was not possible for someone to do work. And in the case of Jesus, as we're going to see here, and so let's just read a little further down. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight, much like the neighbors had asked. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. Now notice the care with which this man answered the question of the Pharisees. He simply says, he applied clay to my eyes. And then when he gets to stating What happened next? He says, I washed my eyes. And this doesn't appear to our English reading eyes, but this is really what it means. I myself washed. Those who heard it would have known that he was saying, I'm the one responsible for washing my own eyes, which would be an act of work, by the way. And I myself see. He was trying to divert attention away from Jesus Because he knew what the Pharisees were after. They were after a reason to pin blasphemy or at least a breaking of the Sabbath upon Jesus. Which, in many ways, in many situations, could be cause for execution. So, here we see this man. On the Sabbath, it was said you cannot work. And Jesus had worked from the viewpoint of the Pharisees because he'd taken dust, he spit in it, made some clay out of it, and placed it as an ointment on the eyes. Now, that sounds so unhygienic to us, doesn't it? I don't want anybody putting stuff on my eyes. I don't know about you. I don't want to messing with my eyes. But, here's one illustration. If time permitted, I could give you several illustrations. Here's one illustration. From this era, Vespasian, who was one of the emperors of the Roman Empire, went to Alexandria in Egypt. It was a huge intellectual and commercial and cultural center in Egypt. And when he arrived there, he was introduced to two men. One man was asking him to spit on his eyes. And the other man was asking him to stomp... On his hand. The man who asked him to spit in his eyes, this is the emperor, who was thought to be a god. hope you understand that. Among the Caesars, all the Caesars were thought to be gods. So, he wanted him to spit in his eyes because he was blind. And then the man who wanted him to stomp on his hand had a withered hand. So he said, I can't do that. That's senseless. This is what Vespasian said. Tacitus, the great Roman historian, tells these the story. But after much urging, he went ahead and did what he was asked. He spit on the guy's eyes and according to the story, he could see. And then also he stamped on the hand and all of a sudden this man with a withered hand, his hand could work. So there were instances that are not necessarily verifiable, but Tacitus told them as being true stories and perhaps those things did happen. We know that Satan has powers of healing too. And what we would consider unusual ways, unconventional ways. But Jesus couldn't do that because among the Jews and the Pharisees of the day, that you were forbidden to do anything to help someone who was sick except to prevent that person who was nearing death to progress further toward death. You couldn't do anything to improve the person's position Of health, but just to stop it until Sunday when you could really get in earnest to care for people who were in that situation. Listen to what is told us by a rabbi in the 70 AD area, not long after Jesus, regarding what would happen to people if they did such things. They say that one sells them nothing and buys nothing from them. One takes nothing from them and gives them nothing. One teaching their sons no craft and one does not allow oneself to be treated by them medically, neither by a medical handling of an object nor by a medical handling of persons. So these Pharisees were seriously seeking some charge to be laid against Jesus. So let's go back to our text, verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So you see, within the group of Pharisees, there were some who were adamantly opposed to Christ, but there were some who were interested in the possibility because they knew that the book of Isaiah, the prophet, had made many references to what would characterize the ministry of the Messiah when he came. And one of those which is repeated throughout the book of Isaiah is that blind will see. There had been no instance in the Old Testament of anyone ever having sight restored. There were miracles which were performed by Elisha and Elijah and, of course, Moses But there had never been anyone whose sight had been restored. And so these men were thinking. And by the way, we've already encountered in the seventh chapter of John how a division, these same words are used by the writer of the Gospel, John, that a division arose among the people because of Jesus. Do you understand that Jesus Christ divides people? He's interested in unifying people, but sometimes there has to be a line drawn in the sand. And Jesus asks people to step over from the side of being self-sufficient, self-centered, independent, to a place of Christ-dependence and Christ-sufficiency in his or her life. So there was this debate that was going on within the group of the Pharisees. let's continue reading. Verse 17, So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, Listen, he says something differently, doesn't he? He called him a man when he was talking to his neighbors. But here, he steps his game up. He makes a bold statement. He steps out and shows great courage. He says, He's a prophet. Wow. Now, we read from the book of Deuteronomy earlier about... Someone who claimed to be a prophet, and that was a bold claim. And it was a dangerous claim to make because what does Moses say? If you don't follow through and there's not evidence that what you have prophesied comes true, you're, you're dead meat, basically, is what he said. Well, let's read a little further here. Look at the first part of verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight. So this is the third series of questions that we're on the brink of looking at. The Pharisees now are asking intimidating questions designed to scare the parents of this man. Look in the middle of verse 18. Until they call the parents of the very one who had received his sight and question them, saying, Is this your son? Who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, is he is, he is of age, he will speak for himself. So they were passing the buck. This is the way they answered passing the buck. Most generous of them as parents Passing this on to their son. When it says he was of age, this means he had been been bar mitzvahed. Uh, The Jewish boys at the age of 12, between 12 and 13, were bar mitzvahed. It was a rite that they went through. Circumcision had already occurred at birth. But it was a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. So this person was a man. Now, we don't know... I don't think he's a child. The word that would normally be used for a teenager would not be man until late teens, early 20s. So this man was probably at least in his late teens, early 20s. He was a full-grown man at this time in his life. Look at verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. We have no idea what it would have been like for the parents to be expelled from the synagogue. The synagogue was the hub of social life in addition to spiritual life. It was the place that people met and congregated not only to worship God, but to make the contacts necessary for carrying life forward in everyday life, in business and other things. But according to the thinking of the day, if a person were excommunicated, that meant the person was a total social outcast. That would have been the case. And you can see, giving the parents some slack, why they would have felt this way. And we see it in the next part of this text. There's some other questions. We listen now again to the Pharisees. They're full of questions, aren't they? Some serious questions, some intimidating questions. They used all kinds of methods. And then they turned up the heat and they're asking hostile questions of this man. And this man remarkably responds by doing his own probing in a way. He gives probing answers to these questions hostile questions aimed at Jesus and to this man because of his association with the Lord Jesus. Verse 24 says, So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. If we were to turn to Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, we would overhear Joshua telling the man Achan, who had gone against what God had said and stolen some of the things from the city of Ai, hid them under... His cot, if you will, and just for having a little token of the spoils of a victory won. And this man had done something that was terribly offensive to God. And so Joshua said, give glory to God. And then later he says, confess your sin to God. And so when these people say to this man who had been blind, give glory to God... They were saying, confess, because we know this man is a sinner and you're portraying him as a prophet. He can't be a prophet and a sinner simultaneously, they were saying. And then look at his answer, this probing answer. He turns inquisitor here. He's been the one who has been the subject of inquisition. Now he's doing the inquiring. Look at verse 25. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. That though I was blind, now I see. Irrefutable evidence. Pretty powerful. Awesome to think about. I read in preparation for the message from a book by a man named Dale Bruner about a man during the Wesleyan revival. We sang about and praised the Lord about revival in our singing earlier. And in the Wesleyan revival in the 18th century, there was a miner who... Was converted marvelously. And it changed his life, and he could not help but represent Christ in the mines where he mined coal. And at the dinner break or the lunch break, whichever it was, the men would sit around and talk, and he became the object of derision. He was made fun of by all these people. And one day they were talking, he said, heard one of his Co-workers say, do you really believe that Jesus turned water into wine? The man thought a moment. He says, I was not there. So I can't actually say as an eyewitness that that happened. But what I do know is that when Jesus Christ came into my life, He changed beer into furniture in my home. He was was an alcoholic. And He spent all of His money leaving His wife and family in dire straits. And that's what happened when Jesus worked in this man's life. He changed him fundamentally. He was blind and he now he can see. And that's what Jesus does for us. We are dead spiritually. We are blind spiritually. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes into our lives and He is the light of the world where there has been despair and darkness and depression and gloom. and Any other adjective you might want to choose to describe the kind of difficulty life becomes for us apart from Christ. There now was light and life. What a beautiful expression. And now, look how this story continues. He says, verse 26, So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? See, he's inquiring of them now. You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Well, talking about some courage. This this young man had courage. And by saying too, he was saying, I'm his disciples, what he's saying. And there's something we're going to see at the end of this time of teaching today that will be crafted for you and for me. Just as surely... As this young man became a disciple, Jesus would like you to become his disciple too. The word disciple simply means a follower and apprentice of someone who is taught. And the Bible talks to us in the book of Luke, chapter 6, Jesus says that if a person is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Jesus is our teacher if we're disciples. This man had Jesus as a teacher even though he had very little exposure to Jesus. But do you see the radical and rapid transition in this man's life? He is growing right before our eyes in the course of part of a day. This is what the Holy Spirit does when He comes into your life. You don't understand everything, but He begins to unveil Himself. And He unveils Jesus particularly. And we grow in our knowledge of Him. Notice the response. They couldn't handle His logic. So they made accusations and they reviled Him. They reviled Him and said, You are His disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now, if they had thought and had enough insight... To go back to Deuteronomy 18, they would have recalled that prior to the children of Israel finally going into the promised land, Moses said, God has told me that there's going to be given to the nation of Israel another prophet just like me. He was like Moses, but the book of Proverbs, Hebrews rather says this about Jesus. There is one greater than Moses here. He was greater than Moses because he's God. Moses was not. A great prophet, by all means, Moses was. But nothing compared to Jesus. And so, these people are making these accusations against this man. They were bullying him. They were trying everything they could to discredit him. And then this man gives them two lessons. He gives them a theology lesson of all people Needing a theology lesson. Remember, these are the Pharisees. You could call out a statement from the Torah, the law, and that person who was a Pharisee could pick up where you left off and quote it for a long time because they had memorized the entire work, body of work of Moses, the Torah. And so here, this upstart, this blind beggar who just a few hours. Later was a man who was in the doldrums. Now he's lecturing them on theology. Look at verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing. That you do not know where he's from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he, that is God, hears him. So he's saying, Jesus... And he evidently had caught wind that Jesus had said, and we've read this earlier in the Gospel of John, I came to do the Father's will. And so Jesus was heard by the Father. He was given power by the Father. And he was the agent of healing of this man's blindness. This man spoke of what he knew firsthand. He knew this man, Jesus, was a prophet and he was a God-fearing man. And then he gives a history lesson. Look at this. Verse 32. Having given a theology lesson, now he gives a history lesson to these so-called scholars. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Jesus' most common healing miracle in the Gospels is that of healing blind. But this is the first man in history that had been healed from blindness from birth. That in itself would have been an indication as to the identity of Jesus. In verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Do you know that's true of us as well? The book of Ecclesiastes says, we know that what God does lasts forever. Jesus says later in the Gospel of John, apart from me you can do nothing. But then in the book of Philippians, Paul writes, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's in Christ that we find the energy, the power, to do what we are given to do in this life as followers of Jesus. Well, let's look at the last verse of 34. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you were teaching us? Well, yeah, he was teaching them, wasn't he? So they put him out. They kicked him out of the synagogue. Now, allow me a little speculation here. For all the courage this young convert had demonstrated, how he'd taken on the most powerful force in all of Israel. For all of that, as he was expelled and he began to think about associations with the synagogue, and he's just leaving. He really may not even know how to get home because he's always been led wherever he went. And so he's going, and he might have second-guessed himself. Have you ever second-guessed yourself in your commitment to Christ? He might have second-guessed the bold statements which he made. And as he's leaving, look what the next verse says. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. Get this. Jesus hunts for people who have been rejected by others because of that person of those people's association with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 34. 18 and 19. And so Jesus comes looking for this man to encourage him. And when he sees him, Jesus has some questions for him too. His questions, however, are questions of decision related to his relationship to Christ. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this teachable young convert said, who is he? Lord, that I may believe in him. The word Lord is the same that's used in a moment in this Interchange between Jesus and this once blind man whom he had healed. But this word Lord can mean as a secondary meaning, just it's a way of being polite. It's like senor or sir when we address someone who we believe deserves that kind of respect. Jesus says to him in verse 37, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. All of a sudden, greater light came into this man's life. He's seeing the Son of Man is this man who has put His hands upon my eyes and rubbed His spittle in the dirt and put ointment on my eyes. And He's the one responsible for my healing. He is the Messiah. Son of Man is associated with the Messiah. If you know the Old Testament use of the Son of Man, He's Messiah. So here He came to the realization, the full realization, And Jesus said to him these things, and then he says in response to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Simple, isn't it? Lord. The word Lord means master, king, sovereign, ruler. Whatever word you might want to choose to describe someone under whom you voluntarily place yourself. And then it says... This simple little statement, easily overlooked, after saying, Lord, I believe, what did He do? He worshipped Him. This word for worship is used throughout the Gospels to describe an individual who flattens out at the feet of someone whom he believes is worth worshipping and honoring someone of great dignity. It was used outside the New Testament, contemporary to this time, to describe people who would come to dignitaries that they wanted a favor from. And they would get down on the ground. They would kiss the feet, actually, of those people. Or kiss the hems of their garments. So, this man gave adoration. And this is common. If you have never had the desire to fall on your face before God, if not literally, figuratively, and worship Him, then there might be some concern about the reality of your relationship to the Lord. Because when we see the Lord and we know who He is and we have been touched by Him as this man had been touched by Him and light has flooded our minds and our hearts and our souls, then the only right and inevitable response is to worship Him. Are you that kind of person? Are you a person who has that kind of worship heart for the Lord? Falling before Him and worshiping Him. Well, this young man provides us an outstanding example of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. If you'll hold your place here, Turn to Matthew chapter 11 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read verse 25. These are the words of Jesus. And He says, I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise, that would be equivalent to these people who see and think they have no need of having enlightenment because they know everything anyway. And intelligent and have revealed them to babes. And this does not mean to little infants in the sense that we think of it, but it means this it means people who become like little children in their interest, and pursuit of Christ and their love for the Lord. There's a certain innocence about such people. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in Your sight. So going now back to chapter 9 as we conclude our study of this passage of Scripture today. Verse 40, Those of the Pharisees who were with Him heard these things and said to Him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. In order to become a follower of Christ, you must acknowledge your absolute need for insight and life that only Jesus can provide. In summary, this blind man's a prime example of a true disciple of Christ. He counted the cost, didn't he? He suffered rejection. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it also hated me before it hated you. So if we follow Christ, we don't have to go out looking for someone to come and be our persecutor. We just follow the Lord. Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and say all things, all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. We're so Earthbound, even as followers of Jesus, to this world we're so consumed with the things of this world. We have little thought of heaven except it's going to be a great place to be when we leave this world. But we need to think about following Jesus with eyes fixed on Him. He was rejected by the religious establishment. He was rejected by His parents of all people. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He says in verse 37, if anyone loves father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. If any other anyone loves and this is harder in a way, son or daughter more than me, he or she is not worthy of me. If anyone does not take up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. In other words, we have to die to ourselves. Count the cost. But the cost is big, but it doesn't compare to the blessings which follow. Christ's presence. Christ found him. This man who was ridiculous. Jesus found him. We don't know how long he hung out with him, but he was with him. He he confirmed who he was to the man. And he blessed the man. I'll be glad if I have the opportunity to sit down with this man someday and let him tell the rest of his story. He's still telling his story today. Isn't that wonderful to us? But we want to know the rest of the story. And then purpose, before Christ, he sat and begged. We've already seen how denigrating that was. And afterwards, he was an apologist for Jesus Christ. He took it to the Pharisees. And he won the debate. It's clear. Here's a man not unlike the apostles who were unlearned, uneducated men, common, ordinary men. But when the same council of people brought Peter and John before them and said, hey, you guys shut up. No more of this teaching about Jesus. Put a lid on it. They said, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard from the Lord. We must obey God rather than you. And then they left in... It was said of these leaders that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We have the privilege of being with Him every moment of every day, if we're His disciples. And we will have unlimited growth in faith. We see it in this man. And we will join in the work of Christ. Look at verse 4. The last look at John 9. We looked at this earlier. We must work the works of Him... Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. When we stand before the Lord, as believers, we're not going to be exed out of the kingdom if we know Jesus. We're going to heaven. We go by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's all His work. But don't you want to be able to say, Lord, I was flawed in my following of you, I made mistakes. I sinned along the way. Lord, you know that better than I. But Lord, I love you and I sought to follow you as your disciple. Is that true of you? Have you put Christ first in your life? Have you set apart Jesus as Lord in your life? This man said, Lord, I believe. Would you bow your head? Having heard this teaching if you have sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to you, maybe even the words of Jesus, and you want that kind of relationship with Christ, which there would be nothing between Him and you. You don't hold back anything. Just say to Him right now, Lord, I believe. And I trust You, Lord, to empower me to be a true disciple of Yours. Thank You, Lord. Amen. God bless you.